Hi, I'm Casey Hobbs. And I'm Shane Mason. And we're the hosts of Nurse Talk Radio. Please join us for this special edition podcast. Welcome back to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, along with Shane Mason, and we're two of the thousands of nurses on duty today. We're back with RN and Professor of Public Health at the University of San Francisco, Barbara Sattler. Barbara, I want to read something and get your perspective on this. In California, 352,724 students attend school within one mile of oil and gas wells, including 217 wells known to be stimulated using hydraulic fracturing, acidizing, and gravel packing. So currently, California state law does not limit how close industry may place unconventional oil wells next to sensitive land uses like schools, hospitals, or residential housing. So this seems unsafe we don't know what this stuff is. What do you think, Barbara? I think it is a very poor plan to have all of these potentially toxic chemicals in close proximity to any population, never mind small children, elderly, frail people, etc. But if you go to L.A. right now, which has a huge oil basin where they're doing these, uh, this kind of gravel packing and acidation, there are there are wells that are literally 10 to 15 feet um, from people's bedrooms. Wow. This Whoa. is not, so when we say um, within a mile, we've got lots of folks within a mile. But in L.A., you, you can have your um, the lot right next to yours be a drill site. And, and if you travel down there to Long Beach and other areas, you see these um, pump jacks all the time. And they've lived with those pump jacks now since the 40s, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. They've lived with oil for a really long time. But these new techniques that they're using are the troublesome ones. They're the ones where they're using large amounts of, of uh, very, very uh, large solutions of acid, for instance. We, weren't, we didn't used to do those processes. So these are new processes being applied uh, in communities right next to people's homes, right next to daycare centers, et cetera. So now that we know, Barbara, where these sites are, what are the next steps that we have to do to try to keep people safe? Well, a couple of things. I mean, one, we need to do a whole lot better regulation of the processes themselves, and we we need to give communities the right to know about the chemicals that they may be exposed to so that they can organize themselves for continued efforts to strengthen those regulations. But we also need to understand, you know, what are their exposures in the air and in the, and in the water and potentially in their food. And then the third thing is that if we really want to understand who is being affected, we need to start looking at that. We need to look at emergency room records and look at them on those who live in closest proximity to the sites and those that live further away. Is there a difference there so that we can begin to characterize what the risk really means in terms of what we're seeing in human health? Now, mind you, some of these chemicals are going to cause cancer, and we're not going to capture that right away. We need to um, develop a whole other set of sort of studies that would help look at that. But I'm from public health. I want to do primary prevention. I want to stop the exposures where they're happening um, rather than set up these very expensive prospective studies. I want us to stop it as much as possible now. Yeah, I agree with you because what's hard is we can see now what's occurring and it took a while to find out even what was in these wells and what was being what we were being exposed to. And then we always want to do these expensive studies. But I, I agree with you, Barbara. It would be nice to stop it 
before we have to wait till people die and then do the studies after. Right. I mean, I, the food stuff that's going on right now with the, using this contaminated water is so akin to what's happened in Flint, Michigan. Mm. I mean, we are allowing poisons to be used on our food production fields. What is wrong with us? I mean, who would say that's an okay thing to do? Well, we didn't know for the longest time. And, of course, why would they want to tell us when we're in such a dire water shortage? And, great, here's all this free water. Forget the fact that it's contaminated and that it may be hurting us. I mean, you know. Just so you know, yeah. they are charging farmers for this water. Of course oh, they are. Nice. Wouldn't that be great? So are they charging more than they would or less? I mean, do they make it attractive to the farmer to use it? I th- right now, the farmers are des- in Any the Central water. Valley are desperate for water. Right. I don't I don't know that they're making it more expensive than any other water. I just know that, that Chevron is selling millions and millions and millions of gallons of water to the farmers. Wow. And the reason they don't have to disclose these chemicals is because it's considered proprietary, right? They say if we tell you what chemicals are in this, then our competitor can mimic our our yeah. technique. Is that why is that like how do they get away with not telling us what's in the chemicals? Well or what's and, in the water? and just so you also know that that is changing a little bit in California, but they every industry has done that practically. Sure. I mean, they are able to do it because they have I mean, this is uh, this is about power, essentially, in the halls of our, you know, lawmaking. Um, they, when regulations are being made, you know, you can get one, two nurses, three, four public health people there, you know, uh, several environmentalists, and they'll have a hundred lawyers in suits that yes. are from the industry. Yes. And they go and meet with the regulators every damn day. Yeah. And when we were recently at a hearing, just last week, in fact, nurses gave testimony at the California Air Resource Board about a new methane regulation. And the board members came up to us and said, Thank you for being here and representing the health voice. We are so glad you showed up Um, because typically it's industry telling them what to do. Wow. Yeah. Barbara, what can our listeners do? What can the public do to be more aware and to learn more about this and help? So there are um, the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments, which is a group of nurses that are expressly engaged in looking at issues where environment and human health are related. Um, we have uh, we have a website. We have regular monthly free calls. If you're an educator, you can be on a call with other educators. If you're a practicing nurse in a hospital or other settings, you can be on a practice call. And there are also research calls, and there are policy advocacy advocacy calls. So every month we talk about where are the way where are the places and what are the ways that nurses can apply their voices which are powerful voices to these air resource boards and water boards and the legislators. When we come into their office, they really listen to us. So we've been helping to tool up nurses um, so that they understand enough and are confident enough. And I'll tell you, after they speak once to a legislator, the next day they feel expert. It's been so empowering to watch them, you know, really feel like um, they can have a voice in the democratic process. Barbara, is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? I'd just like to say how, uh, how very strong and helpful um, nurses' voices can be in this. For more information about this topic, 
visit nursetalksite.com. 